everyone. Welcome to INE Live. I'm your host, Catherine Brown. And man, I wish you could hear the backstage conversations we've got going on today. This is a fun crowd. We're in for a fun stream. We are talking cloud vendor lock-in today. We have an excellent and very entertaining panel of experts here to talk about the common services that lock clients into a provider, the pros and cons of provider lock-ins, because believe it or not, yes, there actually are benefits. And we're also going to talk about when it may be worth it to go with a provider solution versus when you should consider other solutions. So we've got a lot on the docket today. First, as we do each time we stream here on INE Live, I want to let you know we are streaming live right now across social media platforms, including LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch. Be sure to like and subscribe on the social media platform you're using so you can stay in the loop when we do go live. And of course, we want you to get involved, talk to us, talk to others. We love to see that. You know we love interacting with you, answering your questions. We've got a team monitoring chat. So if you have a comment, drop it in there. If you have a question, put a cue at the beginning so we can find these easily. If you have a comment on Brooke Seahorn's appearance, go ahead and put a B at the beginning. I'm just kidding on that one. I'm just kidding. Uh, all right, but uh, anyway, we'll get to as many questions as we can today. With that, I will bring in our guest, and I want to start with Tracy Wallace, certainly no stranger here at INE or at INE Live. Tracy is the director of cloud at INE. He spent over 30 years in technology and 25 years teaching people technology by developing and delivering training content. Tracy is passionate about demystifying the cloud and really just helping professionals understand that, hey, it's not as hard as everyone makes it out to be. Tracy is awesome. He's also very fun and very nice. Tracy, we are so glad you're here with us today. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. And by the way, the check will be on your desk for that. Um, <laughs> none of that is true. Uh, I am absolutely not fun or nice, but I actually am very passionate uh, about demystifying the cloud. Uh, that's that's something I've been training for a while. Um, I work here with people that are scary smart. Uh, and my thing is, look, if I can do the cloud, you can do the cloud. That's that's kind of where we go with this. But uh, we are going to have a lot of fun. Um, I am I am so happy to be here with the team. I think we have a great cloud team, uh, and I won't take up too much time talking about me. I'd much rather you go ahead and let's introduce everybody else. Awesome. Just add a zero to the end of that uh, check, Tracy, and leave it on the desk. I'll, I'll grab it when I when I get back sure. to the office. Thank you. Gotcha. Uh, also, Dr. Melissa Harris here with us today, an AWS instructor here at INE. Melissa earned her PhD in neuroscience from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and then found her way into IT and cloud computing. She has a really interesting backstory. We did an INE Live a few weeks ago spotlighting her and really talking about her story. So um, go check that out for sure. She, she's just got a fascinating um, path into, into this space. So Melissa worked at Amazon on AWS for five and a half years, first as a technical writer and then in curriculum development and training. Thanks for being here, Melissa. Really glad to have you back. Thank you very much for having me. And I personally am absolutely terrified of Tracy. So I live in daily fear of, <laughs> <laughs> and I have a lot to say about Brooks's wardrobe. So. Uh, excellent, excellent. You, you go ahead and drop those comments in as well. Uh, and on that note, Brooks Seahorn. <laughs> everyone's favorite cloud instructor. We just love Brooks. Been with INE since April 2021 as a full-time AWS specialist. Comes to INE direct from Amazon where he was a technical curriculum developer and a technical trainer for Amazon Web Services. Great sense of humor, just always fun to have around and uh, everybody loves to pick on you, Brooks, but uh, but we adore you. Thanks for being here. Well, well, since I decided to wear my eye of Sauron after apparently not handling contacts correctly, this close to October, it's a theme I'm working with, okay? <laughs> it's a theme, it's not a mistake. It's a theme. 
So no, normally I don't wear these giant coming attraction Hubble glasses, but I've got two today. Sorry, y'all. It's hideous. Wait, way to stay on brand, Brooks. We're, we, we in the marketing team appreciate that. Uh, all right, with that, uh, thanks to all of you for being here. I'm gonna flip it over to Tracy. Tracy, take it away. Uh, again, just a quick reminder, send in your questions, send in your comments. I'll be monitoring those along with a, a team here on my end. We'll get it back, but uh, but for now, I'm just gonna turn it over to you guys for uh, whatever you wanna talk about. Nobody ever knows where this one's gonna go with you three. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, um, so what I wanna do, introduce a little bit kind of where this where this is coming from. And literally it's coming from, I was trolling uh, LinkedIn, don't judge, all right? And there was this conversation where some people were bringing up cloud lock-in and they were kind of frankly freaked out about it. And I said, you know, this would be kind of cool for us to talk about. And uh, for whatever reason, both Brooks and Melissa decided to go ahead and, and go with that. Uh, which is fine. And, you know, what I want to do is um, I, I want to I want to put up a uh, and, and now watch, watch. I'm going to put up a Ph.D. level uh, definition of of what cloud locking is. If we if we could just like for a minute share this screen, because uh, essentially I said, hey, it would be really cool for us. We've got lots of experience here uh, for us to go ahead and just just kick it around and, and talk about uh, cloud lock in and, and what that is. And uh, essentially, uh, Melissa went and did research, uh, which, which I, I don't know where that came from, but she did. Uh, but to punish her, I said, I'm going to go through and I'm going to cover this definition. And I was not supposed to give her credit for it, but I guess I let that one out of the bag. Um, so here we go. I, this is a great uh, definition. And what I want to do is I want to go around and sort of give a little bit more of a personal note of kind of where we see it as, as experts in the field. But this is a great starting place definition. So what is vendor lock-in? It's technological incompatibility uh, between cloud service providers, I would say, and on-prem, that leads to challenges with customers being able to move data between vendors, which is portability, and integrate services from different vendors, which is interoperability. All right, uh, that is an absolutely outstanding definite, truly is, I joke around, but that is a great way of looking at it. And what I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna go around because I'm talking now, might as well keep talking, uh, and then we'll, we'll go around and, and kind of give what our take is on, on this. Um, as, as we prepared for this, hours and hours of preparation for this. No, we, we didn't, <laughs> I promise. Um, so for me, like vendor lock-in is, you know, and, and I'm gonna be a little less technical, uh, I, I take my stuff and I put it in your cloud, all right? And then can I get my stuff back out of your cloud? Um, and I think one of the things you'll find, I'm a, spoiler alert, I'm gonna ruin this whole thing. Uh, I, I think I could, it's safe to say, none of us think this is a huge big deal, right? It's something you need to know about, but it's also something that has existed uh, pretty much forever, certainly as long as, as I've been uh, in the IT environment. And you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm gray, I'm not sure how uh, Brooks maintains that dark hair, but uh, yeah, there you go. See, he's, he's got the beard. But you know, it, it's not something really new per se, and it's it's not something to an extent you can avoid. It's something that's good to talk about, and that's what we're going to do. But it's it's really about saying, hey, uh, I'm going with this vendor. I'm going with multi vendors, and I'm putting my stuff in their place. And and what's the benefit to me doing that, right? And there's clear benefits, but also what's the cost? Um, and, and that's it. If you know what those things are, it's, it's really, it's not a big deal. Sorry, you, I made you tune in for absolutely nothing. But no, not nothing. This will be good. Brooks, 
I'm gonna go because <coughs> I'm going for some reason clockwise, and that seems clockwise, even though Melissa, you're in the middle. I wanted you to go last and get the big impact. <laughs> what you got on okay. this, Brooks? Look, you know, the, the the fact of the matter is to me personally, like we've been playing with lock-in forever. Like we've all been doing it. It's been an accepted, and we all want to act like it's something special or different that's occurring now with cloud. We've been doing it forever. We, you know, prior to this, we were talking about things like, oh, we're going to get locked in with Oracle databases. Oh no, or IBM or Teradata or something like that. Going all the way back to the beginning of my career, we were like, oh no, we're going to get locked into this Windows infrastructure with Windows NT and stuff like that. And it goes to what Tracy just said. You know, you're supposed to go into this stuff knowing what the tool set looks like, what the you know, sort of the firmament is set up as, and you take advantage of it to best get your product or service to the market. Now, if you are willing to accept the additional, you know, sort of buy-in to a particular platform so you can get there faster, that's another thing. But what Tracy said is exactly right. When you go into it knowing what you're doing, when you go into it with the right education and the right understanding of, hey, I'm going to accept this sort of lock-in right here because it means I can get to the market six months before my competitor can. Well, that's, you know, go in with your eyes wide open, know what you're doing. And at the same time though, if that is a problem, understand that like, for example, from a code level, how can we ensure that our core code is abstracted in such a way that we can change the external source for anything whatsoever, be it a database from in one provider or going between providers between their proprietary databases and do that successfully. Now it's gonna take some time. You're gonna to have to pay for that. But the general idea is exactly what Tracy said. When we're talking about vendor lock-in, it's not really a thing. You're supposed to know what you're doing if you're smart about architecture. Otherwise, yeah, you can get yourself into a sticky situation. Uh, I think, uh, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of my thoughts on this come from Dr. Harris. So Melissa, I'm gonna throw it over to you now. Like when you start thinking about this whole vendor lock-in thing too, like where, where is your thoughts on it? Where do you come from? Yeah, I, Brooks, I share a lot of the same feelings that you just expressed. And to me, I came into AWS in uh, 2016, and I started working with the solution architecture with the solution architects, and so I kind of came into this whole field completely sideways um, from I think how people normally start out in IT. And so, from my perspective, I was I was steeped in uh, solutions architecture and AWS, of course, and and so I look at it as when like just understanding how do you design your your applications and your architectures and trying to figure out like what are the tools at your disposal uh what what particular purpose do they serve and in my mind it doesn't really matter like which vendor it comes from like and, and to brooks's point it's like know what you're doing before you start building on it and and there are definite trade-offs um, that you learn as an architect and in trade-offs between like cost performance up op, you know um, operation security and all of that and and it's just important whether you're building on one platform or you want to design and, and prepare for risk and you want to spread your workloads across multiple providers it's just something to think about before you start building and so I guess for me um, I don't know I, I, I kind of share Brooks, you know, your, your point of view on that. So, so hey, if... Uh, design if I, things before you get started. Design <laughs> things before you get started, that is hey. nugget. By the way, a couple of things uh, that I want to point out. First of all, Brooks did admit 
that basically he's a hand puppet for Melissa. So anytime you're watching Brooks's content, that is actually Melissa delivering the content through Brooks. It's it's kind of a neat trick that we do here uh, at at I and E. Uh, and a you know, wait for me to get content on the platform with minimal effort. What's that, Melissa? I mean, after talking to Bricks, you know, for so long, like I, I feel, uh, I feel even more convinced that locking is not as big an issue as you know. I, I, maybe you know, I might, I might be really unpopular here. No, I, I mean, I think here's the thing, and and uh, I, I have. Uh, no, no view into the the comments. So y'all are gonna have to keep that up, and don't put in fake comments about like anything negative about me because I'll track you down. Um, but you know, it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, we all sort of came together and said, "Eh, it's really not that big deal. We're still gonna talk about. It. Don't don't go away. There's still things to talk about." And, and I think to some extent, I actually have a little bit of a different perspective than than Brooks and Melissa. Um, mostly, uh, oh man, I was about to throw shade and, and get into the whole which cloud is better, but I'm not going to do that. Oh, here we go. Um, but for next time. Uh, all right, because Azure's better. Um, that's the difference. No, you, you know it's it's funny because I actually am a, probably a little bit more averse to lock in, just because. And I was I was telling Brooks and Melissa this, so I'm going to force you to hear it too. Uh, you know when I, when I was. A developer when I, when I actually had a real job and and had to had to do things that um you know i was i'm a microsoft person look i've been making my living god love microsoft i've been making my living off of them for uh most of the over 30 years that i've been in it uh and building applications i am proud to say visual basic 3 thank you very much uh all the way up through net moving into c sharp right all of that was always windows and and that was fine um, you know, because Windows is kind of a big market space and all that, but you know, Java came along and Java was interesting. But um, at the time, full disclosure, uh, this is going to make anyone who was thinking about taking my courses stop. Um, I was I was working in Visual Basic, and, and I actually got some. Uh, I was working at a place where they had like a uh, pre-release access, I guess beta access uh, to Sun Microsystems and Java. And Java came out, I was so excited, because I was like, wow, this is like, I write code in this and it goes anywhere. Uh, and then I started writing code in it, and um, it didn't have great tools, uh, and it was case sensitive. And I'm not gonna lie, it was a case sensitivity uh, that made me not go Java. But you know, Java was this, this awesome concept, I didn't quite jump on board, uh, because it could run across platforms. Now granted, in the beginning, certainly, it ran kind of on a least common denominator concept, uh, but, but then, you know, I'm a .NET person that through and through, that's what my core is. .NET Core came out and I about jumped up and down, right? This idea that I can now uh, build things that are cross-platform and package that up in a container, in a container image, and all of a sudden now I can write my code and literally deploy it across anything. And for me, I kind of like that idea that, that I can create my logic and I can deploy that logic across clouds. And you know, from, from a code-based standpoint, there's a trade-off. And Brooks, you know, and, and Melissa, I, I was doing my best to irritate both of you uh, this morning when we were talking about like uh, what goes on? DynamoDB is a terrible idea. Um, no, it's really oh, not. Oh. I just, see that that was the look I was going for. Wait till I drink to say that to throw shade. Man. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I, I didn't bring a drink. I'm just going to be parched here, so I had to, I had to punish you. Um, 
<laughs> but um, for me, like, you know, anything that, that if, if I can write code that I literally can write it one time and just deploy it out wherever, I'm going to do that. But there's trade-offs to that, right? Absolutely. You know, um, and, and Melissa, you know, we were talking about this, like, uh, the, the trade-off of, and, and Brooks mentioned uh, time to market, right? But also performance, right? Because I love, yes. I love building things into containers. Now, I'm not saying, look, containers can be exceedingly efficient, right? But you are building layers on top of layers there, mm -hmm. right? As opposed mm -hmm. to, say, creating a C++ or Rust app that's running on bare metal, which we're typically not talking about as well. But um, so for me, I like the idea of, of avoiding lock-in if I can. But the, the key is, is the cost benefit. Now, I'm gonna take over a little bit because I'm the one that can't see anything because I, I did screen share. I'm gonna make the most out of my screen share. Uh, and so what I wanna do is I wanna pull up a whiteboard and kind of put out the way I see it, the layers that I see that are, are applicable here and, and essentially, because I know Brooks and Melissa have them tear it apart, is essentially what, what we're going for here. So if, if we could pop back to a screen share, that was my really, oh, there we go. Okay, now, so I, I forgot my mouse because I am terribly together. All right, I'm gonna use, uh, because I'm the only person in this company using a Windows machine, I'm gonna make best use of it. And I am going to use Microsoft Whiteboard, which is a fantastic tool. All right, so if I think about the cloud, Right. Now, I'm not going to talk about software as a service, right? But you often hear the idea of infrastructure as a service, and you hear the idea of platform as a service. And this is a, a gross simplification, but your infrastructure as a service is essentially your uh, virtual machines or in that other thing, EC2s, which still makes no sense, uh, your virtual networks otherwise known as virtual private clouds, uh, and your storage, right? And I cannot plan, so we're gonna have to write that out. All right, so that's infrastructure as a service. Whereas platform, it's gonna be services like, for example, I mentioned Lambda or function apps or functions in GCP. Tons of other ones. I'm just going to put that up there because I mentioned it. All right. Now, the vendor lock-in for these two approaches. Okay, I, just, I did see a thing. That's a weird-shaped cloud. There's, <laughs> there's the cloud. All right. Oh, we have the measure. giant nebula that looks something like a 1980s cartoon ghost, but it's a cloud here. And for the bearded IT guy, we've got it. Cloud. Although that doesn't look like an O, but we're going to move on because I don't want to waste your time. All right. <laughs> And there's people over here on the other side of the cloud because this has to happen. There we go. All right, oh gosh. that is an official Tracy Wallace diagram. Um, I've been doing this 25 years. That is literally the best I can do. Sorry. Um, in any case, right, this is one way we can look at it. And there's an argument here, but it's actually not the way that I'm typically going to look at vendor lock-in. I, I break it down a little bit more and I'm not gonna subject you to more of my drawing, but I look at it these three ways, all right? You've got infrastructure, you've got data, 
you've got code. Okay. Doesn't matter what environment you're in, you're going to have these things. Now, when I talk about cloud, the only other thing that I would break out is I would break out, um, I'm going to say standard. I'll talk about that in a minute. And proprietary, but I am, whoa. Okay, that doesn't always work. That was supposed to be a P. I'm going to say prop for proprietary so you don't have to watch me uh, write that out too much, right? And to an extent, I can have the same thing with code. Okay. Now, if I'm using infrastructure as a service, I'm kind of here. And if I'm using platform as a service, I'm kind of here. Okay. In terms of what matters to me architecturally. And, and architecture is everything. Brooks mentioned that. Now, that's how it breaks out when we talk about lock-in. You know, if, if I'm at the infrastructure as a service level, if, if I am just pulling infrastructure in, right, then the only lock-in that I really have is the fact that my information is physically stored, right? And, and we'll draw this out there. Kind of applies to data, but kind of applies to infrastructure as well. I've got a virtual machine. That virtual machine has a virtual hard drive, right? And it's stored in the cloud. Right? And if I decide to move clouds, I'm going to have to move that virtual hard drive. Simple as that, right? If I'm using platform services, right? And, and I'd be interested kind of the platform versus infrastructure services, it's kind of a moot argument as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't really matter that much, although people make a big deal of it. Um, but if, if I'm using platform services, then I have to think about both data and code and, and how I'm, I'm working with them. And when I talk about standard versus proprietary, Right? If, if I'm looking at you know, standard data, things like files, whether I'm storing it in S3 buckets or I'm storing it in a storage account in Azure, right? that's pretty standard stuff. And you're basically going to have to export those files, no big deal. Data gets a little more interesting when you start talking about vendor-specific technologies. Right? When you start talking about using, and I joked a little bit about DynamoDB because Brooks is very passionate about DynamoDB. But you know, if I'm using DynamoDB versus using Cosmos DB, right, both do the same things, but your code base is going to be specific to that. Right? But then that's true for whatever database system you use. right? Um, and, and you kind of make that argument, OK, uh, I SQL Server, MySQL, uh, PostgreSQL, if you're using those as your data standards, then those are standard, right? And the only, the only lock-in you have is going to be the cost of, uh, I love using this word even though it's not exactly the right word, exfiltrating uh, that data, right? Uh, you have uh, ingest and egress, right? So egressing that data, right? But if I'm using something that is proprietary, then I have to look at re-engineering my data structures. And then, you know, at the, at the code level, and this is something where, where uh, Brooks was really talking about it, and you know, for me, the term that comes into mind is as uh, I was great as my earpiece was falling out, they flipped right over to me. Fantastic stuff. Um, so, uh, but what comes to mind is like dependency injection, right? Say building your code such that you're minimizing the impact of plugging something in. All right, that was a lot of words. Thoughts, Brooks and Melissa? Am I am I just way off base with the way I'm thinking about categorizing that? I think there's so much nuance there 
there's so much nuance. There's no nuance. Like, you're, you're oh, right. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's, it's like what's like the idea of the data, the standard versus you know like something that is much more proprietary. Like this is something that's starting to come out with a lot of people who built data lakes. Um, in AWS, they had been using the HDFS or Hadoop file system. Right. The problem with the Hadoop file system is is that okay, it's awesome. Don't get me wrong, but it really isn't the best thing for cloud storage. It turns out Apache Iceberg is actually a better file format for storing things in S3. So I, I just think, Tracy, it, it gets into such a strange area. Like, yeah, I want to use the platform and service, but at the same time, moving between the different types of things that even at the platform that I have available, I've got to be really smart about it. I've got to have you know the right understanding about it. So like in your diagram where you had the data, I thought that was real interesting because you do have the standard, you do have the proprietary. In this case with like AWS, they have the Elastic Map Reduce File System now, which is EMRFS, which extends the file system to S3. But at the same time, obviously Hadoop, uh, Apache also has their new uh, system out there called Iceberg, which you can now take advantage of in AWS. So it's understanding and knowing about this stuff versus just kind of rocking on with what you've been doing forever and paying a lot of extra money. Hey, AWS is going to let you do it. But you've got to understand that and that that difference between proprietary and standard. And even understanding even in the standard, there's a lot of nuances that can happen there in terms of how we're doing that sort of stuff. And the same, you know, on the compute layer, you know, we can always create code that abstracts the logic from whatever it's talking to on the data side, something I've always called DAMs, data access managers. So my core logic would talk to the DAM and the DAM would actually do the reading to the outside system. So going all the way back in my career, when I was trying to write systems that would talk to SQL, Oracle, um, Teradata, and would talk to an Active Directory to bring all that stuff together, together, um, using a DAM like that protected my core logic, but that made it without me realizing, because at that time it wasn't a thing, it actually made it something I could transport easy. Even though there was no need for it at the time, it's built into it. So in that particular case, going to your idea of infrastructure as a service, it would have been easy to take that code to move it up through that stack and then use it in some sort of proprietary format, you know, using a compute engine like Lambda or functions, and then taking those dams and putting them to things like uh, uh, Lambda layers, where I could break away that code. So stuff like that. Um, Melissa, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Brooks, actually, I mean, a lot of my thinking has come from our conversations um, together. And you just gave the example of creating a dam to like write your to basically enable it so that you're writing to that and you don't have to be tied to a specific database or and yeah. right is that the mm -hmm. if yeah. I'm summarizing that correctly but exactly. I mean I, I guess like to me it, it just comes down like to me that's an application design like issue and like that's and it's not um I mean I guess that's kind of a naive way of holding it or a very simplistic way of no, holding it no not at all I see because it it goes back to something Tracy had said you know it's 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 that whole performance thing with with containers Okay, so we put our code in container. We know we're going to take a performance hit. By the way, everybody, I'm sorry, you take a performance hit when you use a container. Just like if you have to go out to disk to get data, you take a perform. Even if you have to go to memory, you take a little bit of a performance hit. One second, Brooks. Bchorn at ine.com. Complaints go to that address. Go ahead. <laughs> 
Yes, send me your shade. I want to read it. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm sorry. That's the truth. We take performance hits when you come off chip, when you come off of L2 cache, which is in C++ yeah. we can make requests for. Or in C Sharp, I think we can do it too, Tracy. Yeah. We can make a request to the compiler. Please put this code on chip for me, please. Now, the compiler is not obligated to do what we want, but at least we can make the request. So we can do those abstractions to try to make things better, but we take performance hits when we do it. So if you want to be flexible, if you want to be able to move between cloud providers, you've got to pay for it some way, which is what exactly what Tracy was showing us. Um, I appreciate that last part, that it was exactly what I was showing you. Really, that's the takeaway. But, you know, kind of going for that, and, and Melissa is, is unfortunately sandwiched between a couple of developers. So uh, that's right. that's where the uh, the thought process, which is why I think her thought process is also like so important here in this discussion. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's it's funny, kind of riffing on that, and, and again, you kind of get the theme of where we're going with this, is, you know, uh, I, I was JavaScript, right? How many different libraries have mm -hmm. there been in JavaScript? I love watching, the, the social media conversations, and I'm not gonna say which way I fall in this because I don't want the complaints coming my way. Do but it. the, uh, you know, is, is React a library or is React a platform kind of thing, right? Um, and those are arguments. You make that face, those are arguments. But, you know, argument. yes. in five years, it's not gonna matter because there's gonna be a different platform slash library, whatever you want to call it. Right. Right. And then, okay, but th what about all the people that built all that stuff for React, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Now they're going to have to rebuild it. And that that's kind of, honestly, I kind of think that's where we're coming from is, yeah, there is a lock-in. I, I want to put one more thing out, and this is a question I'd ask you both, and you both came up with the answer. All right. I'm in AWS. I am sick of AWS. Notice which one I used as my example. <laughs> and uh, I am moving Jeff out Bezos of AWS. Mind what, what was that? Jeff Bezos mind control. The chip is still on my brain. <laughs> that chip is stinging I'm, me for some reason. Yeah. Is that normal? <laughs> yeah. That, you, you guys think they're kidding? They're not. Um, but, okay. I, for whatever reason, have decided I'm moving all of my stuff out of AWS. All right, I'm gonna. I'm taking the hit on the code base. How much is it gonna cost me? Aside from the code base, just my stuff. I want to move it. What was the numbers y'all came up with? Oh, what's that? Ninety-two dollars and sixteen cents to move. Ninety-two dollars and sixteen cents. It doesn't matter how much data I have. That no, that was per terabyte, right? Per terabyte. Okay. It's going to cost you some money to move it out. And to me, that's the thing. I will tell you, it's funny because um, that was like the one thing I said, hey, let's let's come to this because the end of the day, right, that's kind of to me almost what the differentiator is because all of this other stuff is almost noise, right? Because you're going to pick a platform. It doesn't matter if you're writing to uh, Windows uh, 311, yes, right, um, using Visual Basic or you're writing to the latest Ubuntu using Rust. You're making decisions for your code that eventually are, are going to change. So to me, to a certain extent, you, I say it's noise. It's not noise because, I mean, you have to account for what that cost is going to be to rewrite that code, right? But it doesn't matter what you do. That's always the case, right? So to me, the real cost, when you talk about actual true and this is the one that I'm gonna get a bunch of hate mail on. When you talk about actual true lock-in costs that, that don't apply to anything else, it's just your data, 
right? I, I need to pull my data out of the cloud and it's gonna cost me $90 per terabyte to do that from uh, AWS, right? Whereas uh, if I'm in Azure, first of all, I will tell you, Azure's like really good about their pricing, except I swear, and this is kind of funny and kind of telling, they make it so hard to figure out how much it costs to take data right. out That's of Azure. Right. And That's the right. best <laughs> estimate I can come up with, because it's not on their price calculator, is their cost of actual internet, which is, yeah. if you go to their import-export jobs, they say cost it like it's internet, um, is uh, right around that. It's like 80-some dollars, uh, and then it goes, the, the more terabytes you have, the less it is per, you know, the additional terabytes. Right. Um, okay, quick fun question, off topic, but also not off topic. Uh, what's the cost for uh, pushing data into AWS? How much does it cost you per terabyte to push data in? Well, now, that's an interesting question. Really? <laughs> because, hey, you know what? You can bring all you want. Come on, bring it on in. Bring it on in. We won't charge you a penny. <laughs> yep. Zero. There I like go. that. Yeah, there the wink. It's better right when Melissa does it. It's better when Melissa gives you the wink. Then, you know, go ahead and back the truck up. But you know what? That's the thing, though, Tracy. How many times have we heard cloud providers say this phrase, data has gravity? Yeah. I have heard that phrase so much, and it is. I've only such heard that phrase once, and that was today. <laughs> no, so, Brooks, you're wrong. We're fine. Move on. No, I mean, go ahead. I think, I think that your knowledge is much, you know, much more detailed well, than mine. About this. I, I, I heard, I heard Andy Jazzy it. say it at reInvent like a couple of years ago, oh. like as he was ah, 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 ah. because that's the thing. I mean, I'm sorry, y'all. If you want to talk about lock-in, Tracy's hitting it on the head. It's your data. You get too much data in a provider, you're not coming out. Or you're paying to come out. But I mean, that's true. Look, oh, I, no, again. No, no, no. Tracy, I, I, have, I have seen cases where the the total capitalization of the company was less than the cost would... to get their data out. Okay. I have seen that. But you know what? Back in the day, uh, when, when my hair looked more like uh, Brooks's, um, I worked at a, a organization, they had these things uh, called mainframes and they would back these things called mainframes up onto, I know most people know what that is, right? But they'd back them up onto tapes and then they would ship those tapes off site uh, to a company, probably you would know it. Um, but guess what? It costs money for them to store that data, right? It costs money to buy the capital equipment to store the data in your own data center. And so, you know, okay, if, if their capital costs are so much with the data that they're storing in AWS, it would literally at, you know, the rates we talked about, $90 a terabyte or yeah. less, right? Because yeah. I'm assuming they probably give you discounts if you're doing an exabyte or whatever, right? right. But I, that goes back to what you had said, which is architecture and design, right? right. Think before you right. do this. And you know what? Okay, how much of that data matters? And can you just leave it there and move on? How much of that is operational data that if you moved, you would actually need to move as opposed to say archival data that it's like, okay, I've got it, it's in an archive. I'm not using AWS for anything else, all right? I mean, right? That's not different than going to... Well, it's like this, it's like this whole thing about... Sorry, Melissa, go ahead. But just real quick. That is this whole thing that I saw in a report not so long ago that said, guess what? 70% of corporate data is dead. 
Oh, Nobody's God. using it. It's just sitting there. Oh, Nobody's God. using it. And you could just get rid of it. Melissa, please speak. No, I guess, I, I mean, I think this conversation's interesting, but to me, it's like, I don't know if we're really addressing the real issues that people have with vendor lock-in. You know, it's like, what are the main problems that that exist? I mean, other than the cost of moving it out, which certainly is a, a huge factor, but what are people really afraid of with vendor lock-in? I think to By degree, the way, can I say something real quick? Next time yeah. we're on one of these and you have the real idea, please don't wait till 37 minutes into it yeah, to get us on the right track. <laughs> Go ahead, Brooks. We're having fun talking about data lock-in. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, 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 she's right. She's right. She's absolutely right. You know, what is their fear when they do it? Look, it goes back to don't have fear. Just know what you're doing. Make the right design decisions. If you go to one of these cloud providers, they're going to say to you, don't you want to be like SnapClick? SnapClick was up and running in four months. You know, and, and, and so everybody dives into this whole thing about, well, yeah, we want to be like SnapClick. What did SnapClick do? They went all in on AWS, Azure, GCP. Okay, if you want to be in the market in six months, jump right in. But at least go in with your eyes open, y'all. Yeah, and honestly, I think I think that actually is the point, and um, yeah. that it's it's actually a fear that is to some extent an irrational fear. And like, if you go, and I, I am not calling anyone out, and God forbid, if one of the authors is watching this for some reason, they're going to hate flame me for sure. But yes. if, if you go out and you do a search on cloud lock-in, you're going to get these kind of fiery blog yeah. posts yeah. about exactly. how horrible it is, right? I, right. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, it's not, if you know, to me, like you said, understand you're architecting the solution, whatever your solution is, whether it's uh, Visual Basic, which by the way, there are still companies using Visual Basic. Um, that is a scary thought, but there are, right? But if that's yeah. your architectural decision or your architectural decision is to use Golang or your architectural decision is to use Rust, okay, that's that's lock-in. It's, it's not different than cloud lock-in. So I'll make the argument that the only, the so I would say there's two things with, with cloud lock-in. One, all right, well, there's, there's three things. There's 700 things with cloud lock-in. I'm just gonna <laughs> keep going up until we run out of time. Um, I still think that that understanding the cost of of extracting your your data from that platform. I'm going to make the assumption that, and and this is not an accurate assumption necessarily, um, that your code is not primarily stored in the cloud vendor. Um, if it is, wow, you really bought into the cloud story. Um, wow. No, I didn't say that. Please don't be offended. But <laughs> all right, so the the primary cost factor um, is is going to be pulling your data out. But, and then thinking about re-architecting, just like if you're re-architecting and changing from uh, Visual Basic to C Sharp, right? Just keeping it there, right? Okay, yeah, there's an, again, that's not new to cloud. Um, the only other thing that I would say is slightly dangerous is the fact that, you know what? Um, we are in a subscription world, right? And at any given time, unless you have a lock-in, a long-term lock-in, and, and this is a legitimate fear, sort of, okay? Unless you have a legitimate lock-in, the cloud vendors can raise their, their subscription rates. What you're paying per byte, per gigabyte. I, that's a fear I see a lot, but it's also a fear that I think is somewhat moot. Because- yeah, that, I was gonna ask, is that grounded? Is it grounded that they're gonna keep raising their prices? I mean, Brooks, how many times did AWS cut their prices? Yeah, that- <laughs> 
that's the thing. I think historically, I'm gonna I'm gonna just run right over Brooks because that, that's what I'm doing. I but mean, I'm not saying that that's not an issue, but I'm just, I guess, like I I'm just genuinely curious, like how how grounded are some of these fears, and is it is it the case that cloud vendor products keep deteriorating? Like, is that when you say I, deteriorate, I, don't know. I, I mean, I've read that like a lot of people are afraid that it's like you buy into it, you get locked in, um, which I also d totally disagree with that terminology. But um, it, it's like you, you buy into it and then and then it's it, maybe their their products start, you know, like they're just not as good or they become more inferior. Or you just don't like them. You don't want to use them anymore. And you're stuck. I mean, is that I mean, is yeah. that ground like? I, I don't know. I, I haven't really researched that or, or found the next. Best That's what we're all about but, here like, is exactly. opinions I, with no curious. research. Yeah, opinions with no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Like from a historical perspective, like is that is that a genuine fear? Like I, I don't. I, I would say personally, yes, because Tracy and I can both roll back in time to where I'm sitting in front of a. Uh, a little client computer writing VB, writing C sharp, the database machine was over there, and then something else came along. And then something else came along. Now, the question could be, you know, what's the next thing after cloud? I don't know what it is. You know, it's not Web3. Sorry, everybody. It ain't Web3. He's, he's right. It's not. I'm right. sorry, y'all. It's, he's, it's, he's right. That was. That was a neat trick, but no, it, that's not what it is. So you know what it could end up being? It could be end up really, really, really powerful handheld systems, and we're using WASAM and and Rust in the background to throw interfaces at people. It could be something like that. I don't know, but what I think you're saying, Melissa, is exactly right. It's that fear of, do I really want to go to a three-year purchase commitment with AWS when I, in six months, that thing could happen, but I'm stuck. Okay, first of all, you don't want to do that because you want to do a three-year commitment with Azure, but that, that's just a whole other story. We I mean, um, decided to shelve that topic to the next, the next time <laughs> in the Yeah, yeah. No. no, that's an ongoing thing and it always will be. Um, here's the thing, I'm actually gonna, I will like legitimately, uh, we're getting serious now, all right? So all serious faces, so I have a legitimate, no. Um, but I will actually disagree somewhat with Brooks on that. Um, two things. Historically, um, now this is of course fed to me from the, uh, the cloud vendors. Historically, oftentimes prices actually go down in the cloud more than go up. I, I think the fear, it's always a fear because they're in control and they could change their mind. But mm -hmm. you know, based on historical pricing, that is typically not the case. What vendors will typically do, and you can tell me if this is not true in AWS, is they're going to say, hey, uh, that uh, T2 Micro that you've been on for uh, five years, it's still the same price, may even cost less, but uh, there's this much niftier new size that we've just added that does all these things. Okay, it costs a little bit more, but it's so cool, right? That to me is what I see more, at least on the Azure side, yeah. is that it's, it's not so much the price you're paying for what you're doing is gonna go up. In fact, historically, it tends to go down. It's more that they're gonna come up with new ideas to help you spend your money. Is that is that a fair assessment from your experience? Yeah. Yeah, I think so because they're they're waiting for you to they're waiting for you to creep. Right. They're waiting for you to creep. Yeah, and then, and then, creeping, and then as, the as far as the degradation, and that's a great point, but I'll also make the argument and, and it's actually the argument Brooks kind of made, even though he said yes, it is an argument, and, and Brooks, you were wrong. But Brooks, you're really not wrong. I'm just playing. But the reality is that that degradation is true no matter what. And at some point, 
at some point, you have to say, okay, we're gonna write this code. We're gonna write this code against this environment, understanding that three years from now, there's gonna be a much better environment, but you know what? If we wait for that much better environment, we're literally never gonna get a product out. Right? Just so like for me, I yeah. don't think that the cloud services three years from now, if, if I go and create a web app in Azure, I don't think that's gonna be fundamentally worse three years from now. I think there's gonna be something fundamentally better three years yeah. from now, but I gotta make the decision to write code. And going back to exactly what you said, writing VB on my desktop, I could have waited till the next thing, till Borland Delphi, which was a much better product, uh, came out. What? Oh yeah, Delphi was awesome. It doesn't matter. Um, Kick him off, y'all. I'm caught in the middle off. of like a flame war. <laughs> you are, you are. Developer oh, nerds, developer nerd fight. That's, that's the right thing. So anyways, you know, I, I think we're probably, we, we, we're probably taking a pretty long time to say, I think we all think it's not a big deal. There are things that, and, and I'm gonna go back to you, Melissa, because at, at 37 minutes in, you said we were wrong with the way we were approaching this. So I'm gonna give you word, but my word on this is, yeah, okay, lock-in is a thing in the cloud. Just like lock-in was a thing in 1970 when you chose a mainframe computer. I'm not that old, by the way when you chose a mainframe computer, or in the 1990s, when you chose to develop on a Windows machine instead of developing on this weird thing that had just come out recently called Linux, okay? Nobody's using that. Nobody's gonna use <laughs> Nobody, that. Yeah, quote, there's some Microsoft quotes I'm not gonna say because they, they haven't aged well. Um, yeah. And you know the one I'm talking about. But, yes, I do. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I mean, you're locking in no matter what you do. And that, that's not something new to the cloud. You need to be aware of that. Okay, you need to understand what it's gonna cost. And this is, I think, an exercise you should go. What is it going to cost you to detangle? But, I mean, the truth is, it doesn't matter where you're storing, that's a cost. What is it gonna cost you five years from now to replace that SAN that you've got sitting in your data center that the, the drives are starting to pop off? It's not mm -hmm. a different thing. And is there some risk of the price going up, the, the, the subscription? Yeah, but I don't think it's substantial because history, history and competition say it's not. What, what are y'all thoughts as, as we sort of round this out? No thoughts, I win. Business. We're done. <laughs> Catherine, you no, come right in. No. The well, AWSP like, had nothing to say. <laughs> oh, go ahead, go ahead, Melissa. This is like completely stupid probably, but I'm just gonna put this out. I mean, cost is obviously a huge huge consideration in this discussion what if you have business critical applications like what is it is it in your business like is it in your best business interest to run like to have identical systems running on both or all cloud like on azure and aws that's like, a is great it, is question that inhibitively expensive like i don't you know Th that is first of all that's a great question and it is sort of the opposite of of stupid I, what smart that was a smart question mm -hmm. and it's actually really interesting because if you look and this is somewhere i'm going to put the ine plug in all right right now um one of the things that we're really looking towards on our cloud side is looking at multi-cloud and hybrid cloud right because if you look at the stats the mm -hmm. vast majority of companies and i think i know it's over 70 percent that have a cloud 90. presence have a multi-cloud presence. Depends on the, the studies, but there we go. That makes my argument better, so we'll say more than 90. Mm -hmm. um, so most organizations have more than one cloud. Now, the thing that's interesting to me on that is that's really an extension of the high availability options that you have within a given cloud, 
right? Like, so we know about availability zones, right? Or, or using global availability with Route 53 or uh, mm -hmm. with the technologies that are, in, notice I, I mentioned AWS technologies first, Thank just you. want to say. Um, I you, mentioned Azure first. You did, you did. This is teamwork. This is give and play. This is great. Um, but, you know, within, within Azure or within AWS, right, when you start talking about availability, that's a huge thing. It's going to cost you more money. Right, yes. like it, you, every 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 new instance costs the same as the first instance by and large, right? And so if I want four times, I'm going to pay four times. And I think to a large part, that doesn't change whether I'm saying going between different regions in one provider, or going across mm -hmm. different providers. And I'll say the 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 advantage of going across different providers. The disadvantage is you're talking about a much bigger architectural lift, right? Because there's a, there's more moving parts. But in terms of logical lock-in. If you can get, you're, you're basically doing that upfront architecture that you would otherwise have to do at the back end if you are migrating. Yeah. Um, and and I think, I don't think we're seeing a whole lot of that yet. And and I say that without any research whatsoever. So if somebody comments and says I'm stupid on that, cool. Um, but I, I think you're seeing more organizations that want to be in multiple clouds, and the natural extension to that would be running their mission critical workloads in multiple clouds to give them more options down the road, whether it's for availability or I don't like you anymore. That is it right there, Tracy. I got the nastiest call I have ever gotten from a customer when I was at this other company, wink, because I had said, if you ever have any questions, give me a call and I'll help you. I'm not gonna name the incident. I will not name it because I don't wanna go down that road. But there was an incident that happened with a company in the cloud. Okay, and when this incident happened, it was all over the news. So I've got this raging Cajun calling me in the fall, wanting to know when are they going to do that to me. And when you get hit, I mean, that is a business level gut punch right there. And at that point, that Cajun made the decision, we are going multi-cloud. We're going multi-cloud right now. And basically told all of his Cajun buddies, you know, the next morning, figure it out. I don't care figure it out because we're not going to let that happen to us. And remember, you know, this is getting all back to this one idea of it's about a business. That's what we're trying to do as IT nerds, support that business. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we can take vendor lock-in sometimes and accept it. Then there's other times, and exactly what you just said, Tracy, it's time to say, no, 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 we're going to go multi-vendor because what if? Yeah, and, and I mean, I think, but I would, I would literally count that architecturally as an extension of availability, right? Because really that's what it was, mm -hmm. is it was an extension exactly. of availability. Um, and, and you get that, you know, you had uh, probably the incident you're talking about had to do with uh, an intern flipping a switch. Uh, there was an incident <laughs> in, in Azure, well-known incident, where a lightning strike took out a chiller on the roof of a data center that happened to be the one data center that was the single point of failure right. for Azure AD. So, That's right. Yeah, you, you do have this. But I'll also say this as, as sort of my last thing I'm going to say on that. Um, you're always going to have that, right? But also, it's the vendor's business. Like AWS, now granted, they're part of, they're part of Amazon, right? But they're also the, the profit engine for Amazon. Their business yeah. is cloud. Their business is making sure all this stuff runs. When something happens, it's their business to make sure it's right. It's like when I have cloud security concept, con conversations, that's what those are, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that 
people, oh, I don't want to put it in the cloud. The cloud's not secure. I'm like, buddy, what happened to name the retailer when they were breached? You know what? Ooh, Almost nothing ooh. to the retailer because that's not their business. Mm -hmm. If there were a breach because of a cloud provider, then that cloud provider is going to take a massive business hit, right? And it's the same sort of thing with availability. Right? You, you, you saw that one. I know exactly what you're talking about. You saw that incident once, right? We saw the Azure AD incident once. I'm not saying there won't be other ones, but you know, that's their business. That's, that's what, another. But that example that you gave—that's—that's that's more of an architectural decision that that some. I mean, in in AWS, we teach our students to to engineer their applications so that they are highly available and and distributed across multiple availability zones. So even if you lost connectivity to one data center in one availability zone, you'd still have everything backed up in another. So isn't that like? Yeah, that's what they should have done. Um, but, they, uh, <laughs> they found out they didn't quite do it the way they should have done it is really what happened there. Yeah. Um, well, in the case of the example I was giving, unfortunately, it had nothing to do with technology. It had nothing to do with somebody flipping a switch. It was a decision by AWS to say, you can't be on our platform anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's. And I'm sorry, that yeah. happens. That, yeah. Know, it is. It, okay. Hey, I'm sorry. As business people, we need to be smart about this because, yeah. you, you know, it, it's kind of like somebody single sourcing where they get all their widgets for their business. Like no business owner would do that. They would be on the dock going, we only get this stuff from one place. What about if they decide they don't like us anymore? Yeah. Yeah. What if I, I'm sorry, it can happen. No, Something absolutely. can happen and you're gone. Okay. So in, in that case, you know, that's where you can see multi-cloud now, in their case, they, they would probably be in, still in a, in a big trouble. But the point still stands. The point still stands. Yeah. Going multi-vendor at least gives you a position to where you've got some, you can maneuver a little bit. Sure. But again, you also have to take the architectural hit, which goes back to like the first thing you said, Brooks, is it's not a vendor lock-in issue. It's an architecture issue. It's, yes. It's the way you architect yes. your line of business apps. Okay. Uh, when I was a kid, my, my parents used to watch these, uh, these political talk shows, whatever, and there was this one, I'm going to say, a Gronsky and Company. Nobody knows what that is. If you do, you're old, and it's okay. But he would really be like, okay, this burly guy, uh, last word. Okay, last word. To how much does lock-in matter, Melissa? Uh, my, my two cents worth is that I just believe that you know, my job as an instructor is to teach my students how to properly architect and design their their applications. So to me, I I, I guess you know I, I don't think it's that big a deal, but I, I am definitely needing to do more research on this and uh, have a more grounded opinion, I guess. Okay, we will not support grounded opinions and research in this company. No, we will. I'm just kidding, people. Um, Sorry, I think I mean I I, I understand the concerns and and uh, I just. That, by the way, that sounded very much like a PhD answer. I'm just saying. And that's oh, okay. Yeah. That's a good I thing. I just take my job as a trainer seriously, and I want people to be educated, and I want to like make sure that we're designing good applications and architectures. Awesome. Brooks, your last word on it. Hey, look, it all comes down to computer science 101, okay? When you're doing this stuff, if you architect correctly, it should not be a problem. Like, you should be able to think ahead. But that also means, and I, th I forget who said it in the chat, when the boss comes down and says, use AWS, you've got to be in a position where you can say, okay, we can do that, but we need a little bit of time writing the application to make sure 
that we don't get locked into anything whatsoever, or at least we're going to accept that lock-in because it's going to help us get to the market faster. And so if that's the case, if you're going in with your eyes wide open, if you have the understanding, the knowledge, the training, if you have people like us who are willing to sit here and say, hey, sometimes the cloud ain't what you expect it to be versus just what anybody who is in those particular cloud providers or are partners of those cloud providers are telling you, then you can go in with a safe, sane plan accept the risks and make the right decisions to get your product to the market as fast as possible without destroying yourself. There you go. All right. Uh, I think that's I think that's pretty cool. I'll let y'all have last words on that. Um, anything else y'all want before we push this back over to Catherine? All right, Catherine, if, if we have not... Oh, wait a minute. Were you about to say something, Brooks? No, no. I'm just... I hope everybody who actually sees this in the future in the far future and thinks we're insane, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Something we That's can agree on. That's why we're great. <laughs> Something we can agree on. Excellent. All right, I think we've about talked out, Catherine. If you uh, wanna bring us home, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. You guys are, uh, you, you are very entertaining and uh, appreciate the good conversation. Love listening to it. Thanks for all the engagement. Uh, thanks for being here and uh, appreciate the conversation. We're definitely gonna, gonna have you guys back for sure. Woohoo! We went. We Yay. made it. That was really it. <laughs> this back. is like our audition tape. Come back. <laughs> Yay. I, I was gonna say after after Tracy asked for the last word, no one said anything. I was gonna say that was the quietest I've ever heard the three of you. Right. Uh, I, but then we started talking, so there went that. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, thank thank you guys. This is awesome. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We appreciate appreciate you being here. To our audience, thank you for watching as well. If you missed it live, you can, of course, look for the replay across our social media channels and on the INE website. And got to get this plug in. Be sure to tune in next Thursday, October 27th, for a very special INE Live. We are live in New York City. We're sitting down with four-time CCIE and INE's Director of Networking Content, Brian McGann, certainly a familiar name and face to all of you here. We're also sitting down with Neil Moore. He is the only eight-time CCIE in the world. So we have uh, a great... Uh, uh, merging of the minds here. We're talking shop. We're answering your questions. Great opportunity to to get a direct line in to these experts and uh, and really pick their brains and and see where they think the industry is headed and how they're solving some of the biggest challenges. Again, that is next Thursday, October 27th at 3 p.m. Eastern, and we are live in New York City. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Be sure to like and subscribe on social media platform you're using so you can stay in the loop when we do go live for all the details on our streams and notifications uh, for when we are live. We'll see you next time. Until then, have have a great week. Thanks a lot. Thank you.